Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. That is an underlying assumption that um, that the United States must uh, be prepared to fight a nuclear war and win. That was Greg Mello, Executive Director of the Los Alamos Study Group, talking about a summit that he, Jim Carrier, and Harvey Bennett all attended. And we're going to hear more from all of them. But first, my name is Jim Wollongamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country, thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. So if you think this is important, go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the Donate button. And if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, go to our site, VeteransForPeace.org. Okay, before we get going, we need to promote an important webinar coming up at the end of February. Veterans for Peace and the Nuclear Evolution Working Group are hosting an important webinar titled Warheads to Windmills, Addressing the Threats of Climate and Nuclear Weapons Before It Is Too Late. We will have distinguished speakers, Dr. Ivana Hughes, President of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, and Timon Wallace, Executive Director of Nuclear Ban and the National Coordinator of the Warheads to Windmills Coalition. So if you want some more information and to sign up, you can either text me and I'll send you the link. That's 703-403-6135. Or you can go to the website at veteransforpeace.org and find the link there. Okay, on with the show. So today we have a panel and it includes Harvey. We have Jim Carrier and Greg Mello. And all of these gentlemen attended a conference. So I'm going to turn it over to Harvey. Happy to introduce both Jim and Greg. Greg Mello is executive director of the Los Alamos Study Group, working for peace with that group and others for over 30 years. And then Jim Carrier, freelance journalist who writes for a number of outlets. The card he gave me said Colorado Springs Gazette, but that's one, only one of his many connections. Uh, did attend the, the meeting, which was called, I think it was the 16th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit. Summit, mind you. I was brand new to it, so I not, wasn't sure what to expect, but uh, I had a general idea when they're talking nuclear deterrence. It's going to be about weapons, right? There were dozens of sessions. There was one program that had the word arms control in it. And actually, that was some of the most outlandish <laughs> content that we heard. But I thought that was ironic since the Nuclear Posture Review, the Biden 2022 Nuclear Posture, also says, quote, deterrence alone will not reduce nuclear dangers. I mean, that, and that's the reason for the conference is something that will not reduce nuclear dangers, not even reduce them. I mean, and why do it if it's not going to reduce the danger? In any case, uh, they do summarize it saying the Nuclear Posture Review identifies mutual verifiable nuclear arms control is the most effective, durable and responsible path to reduce the role of nuclear weapons and prevent nuclear use. But it only got one session out of all these, and that session was anything but straight arms control. Greg challenged it, and Jim did too. Both of them had something to say to the presenters on that one. I was thinking I would try to follow Anthony Donovan around because he'd been to him before. It turned out he wasn't able to get his press credentials it turned out it had something to do with a little run-in he had the, the year before, <laughs> ending up leafless. So, so he had to really just hover around in the periphery and up in the up in the lobby and find people to talk to. So he counted on me to go to the meetings and tell him what was going on. So, uh, meet some people, you know, get some rapport going, uh, <clears throat> tell them what I was doing, just try to get them to share some of their 
thoughts and uh, whatever feelings they have about the work they're doing about, you know, this whole nuclear project, all these weapons and, and how, you know, did that produce any stress for them or any conflict or or what were their thoughts? And were they 100% behind it? And I didn't get very far with that because anytime I tried to talk to someone, just about everyone there was with one of the corporate sponsors. The federal government is their project, but they don't fund it. It's funded by corporate contractors, weapons contractors, et cetera. They have a lot of latitude in, in uh, what they present and a lot of influence on, on what happens. Those people that I talked to, they were afraid of, of inter- being interviewed because they just said, well, you need to talk to our PR person. We can't talk to anybody. And <clears throat> I said, I don't want to know the organization's response. I, I want people to people. And I think people to people is what counts and understand each other. And in no way was I going to convince any of them that to submit to an interview. So uh, instead, I just tried to uh, ask a few questions and try to tally Tally things like how many of them knew about the uh, UN treaty. You'd be surprised; very few of them knew about it. So, these people who's this is their job, right? Now, is that the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear treaty weapons? On the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Then, and yeah. most of them, it was like deer in the headlights when I said that. But they weren't unfriendly, but they weren't interested in uh, being interviewed. So, I, I'll just say that I found overall the whole experience was uh, scary. And the feeling I got was, okay, now I kind of see what we're up against. (laughs) They're just so steeped and ingrained in their way of thinking. You know, there's so many contradictions there that nobody really sees or raises. Can we turn it over to Jim Carrier and get his his take? (laughs) Sure. Jim, you're up. I'm coming at this as a reporter. I'm not speaking as an activist per se, other than... Uh, after sitting through this for two years, uh, I ought to be because it's it's uh, it's very uh, eye opening. Greg is a is a guy who's been at this the longest, and for any detail, I go to him because he knows more about it. But I'll just tell you how this all came about. So uh, a number of years ago, worked for the Denver Post, and I had a job where I could take these big projects on. And in 1995, I did a big series called. The, the atomic legacy in the West. 95 was a real opening of everything because Hazel O'Leary was uh, under, under Clinton was the energy secretary and they were starting to declassify and they, they were publishing now booklets saying where all their stuff was, where all their factories were, largely because they had a lot of cleanup to do and they needed to tell people why they were spending money. And I went all over the West. It was the Denver Post is you know, covers the West. <clears throat> I did go to all the labs, uh, the test site, and, and then ultimately uh, I went to Hiroshima on the 50th anniversary of the bomb. It really literally from beginning to end, I, I actually found an old guy, old Indian man who had had worked in a hand-dug uh, mine on the Navajo Indian Reservation, and he was able to take me to it. The reason he was still alive was that he had no he knew enough electric arithmetic as a kid that they gave him a job of standing at the opening of this mine to keep tally of the number of wheelbarrows of pitch blend that they were bringing out almost everybody else who worked in the mine got cancer and died but he was still alive and we went out there with his walker and I mean it was it was really emotional to go out there and see where this had come from uh, this was not uranium from that ended up in the Hiroshima bomb or the Nagasaki bomb, but it did ultimately in the Cold War. And from there went full circle, if you will, to Hiroshima to see that. Many of the projects I did at the Denver Post, I turned into books and I wanted to do this one because it was of historical significance. And two, three years ago, when I realized I needed to do footnotes and fact-checking and all of that, I began looking around and discovered that the story had changed. You know, in 95, the labs were shut down. Los Alamos was looking for something to do. And uh, you could tell that they weren't happy just, you know, learning at crystallography and, you know, DNA stuff. They really wanted to do what they'd done all these years. The budgets were shrinking. We were spending more, or at least budgeting more on cleanup than we were actually in the, if you want to say, the bomb making business. We've learned since that 
Los Alamos was periodically making a pit. So it was looking at the aftermath of it, what we thought was the aftermath, what I thought was the aftermath of it. Remarkably, this all come back to life. And so I went last year with my eyes wide open to the 15th, I guess, the conference, or nuclear deterrence, was shocked, really, uh, at a couple of things. One was how open they were uh, in terms of th- what they were doing and what they were spending and and what their plans were. And I wrote a piece both for the, the Gazette and Progressive talking about basically the fact that we're in, an, in a new Cold War, certainly in a nuclear arms race. And that has not to this day be, really been written about. It, it's, it doesn't get much publicity. It's kind of shocking to me. And, the, the, you know, among, among the other shocks, that I had was the discovery uh, that uh, this all really began under a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Obama, who was arm-twisted into starting this remodernization program. Well, that's now reached $1.7 trillion, spreading out over looking forward to the next 30 years. I haven't digested entirely this last meeting, but the tone was entirely different. Last year, it was, woe is us. We can't find anybody to work here. We uh, we have supply chain problems. We've got this charge really from Congress to make 30 pits, or 80, I guess, 80 pits. And we are way behind. And right then at that time, it was China and somewhat North Korea. And, and I would say, and I described it last year as a kind of a mix between a, a pep rally and, and a, a layout of what the United States is doing in its nuclear business. The conference is put on by basically a business magazine uh, that is uh, kind of neutral, but they're not kind of really neutral. And this year, the, the tone of it, in my view, was entirely different, which was that we are underway. We've hired thousands of new workers. Uh, The lead of the story that I have yet to write, but will this coming week, is that they will now, by August, I think, uh, have the first new plutonium pit done war ready as part of the process of rebuilding there. And Greg has reminded me that that this was being made for a, a missile that's not even built yet. So, you know, they're moving forward and the whole atmosphere was much more upbeat. This is the nuclear industrial complex. 80% of the people who work in the labs and work in the factories are contract workers. And then what you have is it's really a relatively small group of people at the top of the government who give the marching orders and control the budgets, you know, advocate for that. But what you have underneath if you look at it from some distance, is that you have a huge lobbying machine on behalf of nuclear bombs and nuclear deterrence. And now, as we know, it's not it's not just the bombs and the modernization of that and the redoing of the plutonium pits, et cetera. 400 new missiles, they have a new planes, bombers, and control centers, and they are going to be new submarines as well. So it's it's really a whole new war going on. And I think the American public, by and large, is completely ignorant of it. Uh, I, I will just tell you that so what this conference is, is a business magazine uh, charges really modest amount, two $3,000 for a booth. What you have now is you have all of these industrial contractors who are lobbying, I'm sure, the government and their congressmen uh, to support their jobs and their factory and to grow them. And then you have the local congressmen who are doing the same thing. And so you have, uh, you know, a lot of money at stake, uh, growth mm-hmm. and dollars, all of that. And so it's it's a, I guess I would use the word frightening, to, to see the inside mm-hmm. of the sausage and see enthusiasm uh, that these folks are bringing to it and the power that they wield focusing or into where we're going to be going. Yeah, that was uh, one of the things Greg really mentioned, too, is that these contractors, you know, they're, they're just given more or less, uh, you know, here, here's what we want done. But they have so much latitude in what they do and how they do it. And, of course, it's probably going to be the, their choices are going to have something to do with how much they're going to be making off it. So, you know, who's running the store? It's not anybody who's elected or has any connection with what people in the U.S. might 
might want. So, Well, who are some of the sponsors? Grand sponsor are Longenecker and Associates. I don't, I've never heard of them. Then the next level is the Platinum Sponsors, and that's a bunch of, well, there's Honeywell, which we all know, but the rest of them I don't, I'd never really heard of. We've heard from Jim Carrier and Harvey Bennett. So, Greg Mello, let me ask you this. Are you, Harvey's new to the conference, and Jim, this is his second year. Are you new to the conference? I've probably been to most of the 16, at least 12. Um, it's a mental health challenge uh, to go and <laughs> always a little unhappy about being there. And sometimes it's worse than others. Why is that? Because, uh, well, it's gotten worse. Now, what I heard Jim say that the tone is quite different this year. And uh, I couldn't agree more. There's been a gradual shift at these conferences away from facts and toward ideology. So they become, in a way, less useful. Uh, I don't like being uh, sitting there helplessly getting showered with propaganda. And uh, the larger the conference, the less opportunity there is to, to be involved. Um, in past conferences, I know that I've had more floor time than any single speaker because of all the questions that I've asked and comments in the questions. And I know that I was being comped in because it would liven up the place. But it reflects the the change in the political climate that I think you've all uh, seen. And uh, Jim just uh, gave testimony to as well. We're going toward the political right in the nuclear business. And that's reflected in these conferences. Mm-hmm. And I should say that the composition of the conferences of the speakers is determined in part by the marketing of the organization that puts them on. I mean, heavily by it. So access Intel, they're the trade press for nuclear warheads. These contractors and government offices are the only ones that can afford to subscribe to their publications. This year's conference was very raw, raw. And exactly like Jim said, last year was woe was us. And that woe was us was the key message last year. And I'm quite sure that heads in the cabal of nuclear contractors, because that's what we're talking about here, got together and said, no, we don't want to do that again. There were way way too much said about our problems with staffing and supply chains and all that. And they all had more or less a common theme of what a great year it was and how it'll be greater next year. I was also at the pre-conference meeting. It was more right-wing, where we might be able to go if we are successful in selling our message. Christopher Yaw, I don't know, um, um, from University of Nebraska, seems like a really nice guy. And as uh, Harvey was saying, there's sort of a contrast between some of the personal qualities of these people and their political ideas. But uh, Chris Yaw was explaining how you could use um, less, fewer cruise missiles if they had micro nukes on them. And instead of taking 58 missiles to take out a Syrian airfield, you could use only eight. And how we should use these surplus pits at Pantex to field a new generation of theater nuclear weapons and how they wouldn't have to go through all of the extensive planning and analysis that the present weapons have to go through. And so we could feel them quickly to respond to the numerous targets available in uh, China and Russia. And I heard in this ideological approach, I, I think that one of the purposes of the conference is, of course, to network among the various contractors, but to rehearse the narratives that are going to sell in the present political circumstances. So the, the buzzwords, the current buzzwords, most popular ways of presenting things, the contracts at these sites, they will run a site contract at an NNSA site is now running somewhere in value between 10 and $100 billion. So divided among, let's say, a small consortium of people that would form a site-specific uh, LLC to run one of these places. And they don't have to hazard any of their capital to get one of these contracts. They just have to be chosen on the basis of their corporate resume and uh, political factors. Greg, before you go any further, NNSA. Yeah. Everybody's mentioned NNSA. What is NNSA? 
It is a, a semi-autonomous subsidiary of the Department of Energy that was set up in 1999 to basically free nuclear weapons of some of the internal constraints that otherwise existed under DOE. Uh, National Nuclear Security Administration. National Nuclear Security. And Harvey mentioned there was only one group that talked about disarmament. Wouldn't you think that National Nuclear Security would be talking about elimination? You would think the Harvey did uh, <laughs> and Anthony Donovan did, certainly. And they all know it's out there. They know who I am. And for example, and <laughs> but they didn't talk about it at all. The arms control panel, as Harvey said, was I felt that there was real uh, a special brand of real evil on that panel. Yes. And that was the one which was, you know, fascinating in a horror movie kind of a way. Make one point that or pick on of something that Greg said. And you talk about talking points. Well, I'm a journalist, and so I'm born skeptical, right? And uh, veer into cynicism quite often. But the last year, I forgot what the talking point was last year. But what's striking to me is they have a certain catchphrase that they use, and it begins at the top with Miss Ruby, who is the chief administrator of this department. And then you hear it repeated over and over and over again. Twin peer or crisis. The potential of two nuclear peers instead of just the U.S. and Russia. No, they've got potentially two nuclear peers. Yes. And isn't that scary? And we need to do a lot more. Last year, China was a, a growing menace. This year, it's a peer. And That's so right. uh, we've got three big nuclear powers, and then they got these other guys biting at the heels coming along. And next year, probably North Korea will be, you know, I don't know what they'll call it. But but what I'm saying is that uh, cynically, uh, and it's just there to be, if you just listen to the tape, <laughs> tapes for the three days, you hear these same phrases, their same numbers, the same last year, it was the this many warheads and this many this and this. Every, I mean, it was all over and over and over again, talking points that is spread through this conference and probably ahead of time to the tribe, if you want to. Now, I do have a clip. Maybe this is what you're talking about. I don't know who's talking, but it was part of a clip that Harvey sent me that he called Escalation Management. And we're going to just listen to a little bit of that. As a nuclear problem for the U.S., uh, it was about the emergence of a second nuclear peer. And what are the particular problems that come with having two nuclear peers uh, for, for our nuclear strategy and posture? Uh, and and the, the core analytic framework was to, to pose that question against the spectrum or continuum of conflict, peacetime, crisis, and war. And to say that in each of these phases, peacetime, crisis, and war, the fact of having two peers to worry about, and maybe one or two additional nuclear armed states, uh, is consequential. Uh, in crisis, it's difficult to imagine that there will again be a time when we are only worried about one adversary in time of crisis. We are always now, henceforth, going to have to worry about a second adversary exploiting a moment of crisis between the United States and some other country uh, to, its, to its advantage. Peacetime crisis war. In war, uh, the study group deemed it unlikely that we would have to fight two major nuclear wars at the same time, but likely that we would face uh, escalating crises that would both require nuclear deterrence actions. Well, we'll leave it there because the guy is insane. Because <laughs> within within one sentence... He said it's unlikely that we'll have to fight two nuclear wars at once. I mean, who does who says something as insane as that? Because fighting one nuclear war is going to end humanity. So we don't have to fight two. <laughs> and and the idea of fighting two supposed to be reassured because it's just unlikely. That means uh, like 
Jesus, a little less Christ. than 50-50, right? Yeah. They, I got to say, they do uh, believe in fighting and prevailing in a nuclear war. That's important to get on the table. And you're, you're close to saying, but I'm going to say it. That is an underlying assumption that, mm-hmm. um, that the United States must uh, be prepared to fight a nuclear war and win. I think that might have been Matthew Kroenig. Uh, this report played a fairly big role in the conference. It was kind of the um, the basis, and there was a panel about yeah. it. And it's yeah. called America's Strategic Posture. Final report of the Congressional Commission on the Strategic Posture of the United States. It's not a government body, but it was a group that uh, is uh, set up by the House Armed Services Committee. Yeah. Despite the fact that in January of 2022, they had the joint declaration of the U.S., the U.K., China, Russia, and France saying, in writing, formally, a nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. Mm-hmm. And they're spending a whole conference talking about how they're going to fight a nuclear war and win it. And so that's one of the premises of this conference? It is underneath. It's not too far under the surface. It's stated, but it's implied. And way and just the whole the way they're deploying weapons and the kinds of weapons they're deploying. Now they've got the the uh, you know the nuclear ballistic submarine that's got the low yield. It makes no sense if you're just talking about deterrence. This is about war making. Can I make uh, Jim? Can I make two yeah. points and then I'll get to the. When I sit through these meetings, it, 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 it's very strange Lovian to me. I mean, it's it's you know it's like you can't fight you can't fight in the war room. That's that absurd when you realize what they're talking about uh, in kind of nonchalant <laughs> uh, matters. And yeah. they want to be superior. That that's the whole idea. And they, they means saying, they means United they, States. Yeah, I'm going to say, well, let's, I like to call it the enterprise. That's what they call themselves. They make up the nuclear industrial complex. They kept saying, we are not going to do a one-to-one thing. The fact is, Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have more weapons now than anybody does. And we will continue to have more than anybody does. And so we already have superior power uh, in the nuclear business. And we will all, in this Nobody wants to say it, but it, it seems to me that it's clear that they're going to want to build more and faster than anybody else so that we have we have still have more. And the other thing I wanted to mention is I'll never forget last meeting, last year's meeting, when Anthony was in, in another one of his colleagues was standing outside holding a banner that said nuclear war is illegal. And they weren't allowed in last year into the hotel. And so what you what I saw were were this 1.7 trillion dollar you know, nuclear industrial enterprise, and then outside on the sidewalk were two guys opposing it, and that to me is is a metaphor uh, for where we are in this country. God help Greg and and his and the uh, folks like him who are around, but the, you don't hear much about them. And well, you hear from Greg and he's, he's the expert on outside of the lab, but where is the peace movement? Where is the anti-nuclear movement? Where is the, especially given the fact that we're doing this, uh, uh, spending this much money on this enterprise and to maintain our superiority, that's the total craziness of it. I mean, it's like superiority, but it only takes a couple of bombs to become dangerous. So Jim is, Touching on some important points, the I wanted to say that the buzzword enterprise for this cabal or this uh, club was not used in the early years of these conferences. So that is a that started in maybe ten years ago, roughly. Before that, it had a more federal character. Enterprise is a, more of a capitalist uh, character. And there's an old timer who used to run a lot of the weapons complex. I'll just say uh, Steve Gadis. He ran uh, Rocky Flats and the Savannah River and all the production plants out of the Albuquerque office. And he said to me in one of the breaks uh, several years ago, he said, they call it the enterprise. I'll tell you what, that's the problem. It's not an enterprise. And Mm -hmm. 
I know from talking to you know people who work in that office and others, and we see it this change this cultural change from civil service to profit, and that happened about about ten years ago. I wanted to say about this question of parity and the two peer adversaries. We know from conversations on Capitol Hill that comes straight from Stratcom, so that is where that term comes from. Someone asked uh, Stratcom whether we they thought we'd ever see negotiations to get rid of a third of the U.S. arsenal uh, as we were close to having under Obama at one point. And the word from Stratcom is no, that we will not do that because we now have two peer adversaries. And Jim is absolutely right. There is a felt need to manufacture as many nuclear weapons as possible. The United States feels like we're losing the capacity to coerce. So when people at the top of our government talk about deterrence, they really mean coercion. It doesn't take that many nuclear weapons to uh, to deter someone from attacking us, but it to prevail decisively in conflicts with adversaries is a creates a, a coercive situation that can be used in negotiations and as a top cover for expeditionary forces. So, and it's multidimensional as Rasmussen's talk at the conference about those space assets and how fast they were getting them up into orbit, how quickly they could get the data to the warfighter on the ground so he could yeah, tighten the, uh, what do they call it, the kill chain, the target to the identification of the target to the, uh, that's all very important. And it's closely connected to this coercion of which nuclear weapons is just one part. We saw at that conference the nuclear warhead part, but it's connected to this broader felt need to have a coercive power, which is slipping away or has slipped away. Like Ellsberg talked about, we use nuclear weapons all the time. I do want to get out while we can that the theme from last year was there this year, but in muted form. It was almost like we can't talk about that. We can't talk about uh, how actually we're overwhelmed with work. And they were a little proud that they were working on five different kinds of nuclear weapons at the same time. They're working at a pace which is greater than since the 1980s, and they're adding two more. Um, well, one for sure and one possibly. So that'll be seven kinds of nuclear weapons at once, and they are behind in everything. It's kind of the, the cost overruns and the schedule overruns were banished to little mumbles on the side. And... Uh, but they're quite real. And one of the uh, people on Capitol Hill that was there, I said, you know, in, in a break, I said, how seriously are you guys taking the debt and the, the debt service that is now growing exponentially in the federal budget? And they said, oh, very seriously. And I said, are they going to be able to do all this? No, they're going to have to prioritize. So that sort of talk, was banished from the stage. Meaning something doesn't get a top priority and then doesn't get funding, that was eliminated from the stage. Yes. And there was also sort of a rallying cry, on budget, on time, which never <laughs> happens. <laughs> no, it never happens. You know, this uh, Bechtel, uh, Bechtel National President, Dina... Dina yeah, she was... Mar she was not impressive. <laughs> no, she was not impressive, frankly. And they're in charge of the uranium processing facility at Y-12. It's right. years behind and billions over, per, yeah. over uh, cost. And it's a, you know, Marvin Adams, the number two at NNSA, has been running back and forth, trying to bring that thing closer to where it's supposed to be. Some of these projects that and pit production, they can't make nuclear weapons without uh, having those things finished. And, uh, you know, they're talking about Savannah River, which has never done that even. And they don't have anything in place to do it. And, and Los Alamos wants to ship everything over to Savannah River. They don't want to do any of them. 
potentially, uh, they've been talking seriously about splitting Los Alamos Lab into other sites uh, in, in Santa Fe. Put a, um, they're negotiating for a new Los Alamos Lab in Santa Fe, mm -hmm. New Mexico, mm -hmm. and because they can't fit it all. So, and Where are you, Greg? I'm in Albuquerque now. Uh, okay. We moved down here from Santa Fe. So you're close. You're right in the belly of the beast. Yes, a, a few miles from here, more nuclear weapons than anywhere else on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, New Mexico spends so almost half the entire warhead budget. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot of and, it around here. And you're still smiling. Smiling because I know people like Harvey and other people. And, you know, it's a good life. You know, some of the best people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I got a, a guy from GAO had did did a decent job. I thought he brought a little bit of sense of sanity, humanity. So here he is. Hello, everyone. Yeah. I'm David Wishard from the Government Accountability Office. I suppose my question was mainly for Pene, but to go to everyone. Elaborate a bit more on what China has expressed interest in entering into cooperatively and how this affects, to the extent you can share it, our thinking about what we might still be willing to do cooperatively with Russia. There's some dependencies here that I don't think were asking about you know, trying to do something cooperatively apparently and the guy that was answering he does arms control for biden yeah and, and he, he was like the voice of moderation compared to mallory yeah mm -hmm. jesus because and i probably missed this but what i was getting out of that was well it's up to them to limit their stuff we're not going to limit until they limit that doesn't make any sense either there wasn't underlying um, assumption that we were all very Russophobic and Sinophobic. So there, I'm, I'm just going to be very blunt here. This agenda is founded on ignorance and racism. It's a big part of how this slides right past people. It's been built up um, ever since it became a political tool in the domestic context here. And some people I talked to at the conference, well, one person who really should have known a lot better. I mean, they're just completely ignorant about other aspects of foreign policy, recent history. I mean, we're, I mean, these are, I talked to, to someone on the America's Strategic uh, Posture Committee. I didn't really, she didn't really know anything about U.S.-Russian mm -hmm. relations. That was very shocking. I think of this is the thing that exercises me more than any other thing. It is the acquired stupidity and incompetence in the very highest parts of our government. 
which we did not have in the past. Even under Reagan, mm. there were there were hawks, but there were a lot of realists who had a respect for their counterparties in in the Soviet Union. Now that is gone. So now we have arrogance and ignorance combined. We've heard from Ray McGovern, who has a pretty much disdain for the folks around Biden, uh, calling them rookies. And so it sounds to me, Greg, like you're um, seconding that that stance. Yes, I'm a Ray McGovern fan. His uh, part of the world that are way more capable than the people who are setting policy in the State Department and National Security Council right now. Yeah. Good Lord. I got clips from two people who actually made some sense. All right. So here's the first one. Mm, I think that the righteousness that I'm hearing about the U.S. position in the world is quite misplaced. And it frightens me and it makes us less secure. I feel that both the National Security Council and the State Department are functional echo chambers at this point. And I'm wondering, can we get back to a more uh, realist approach in the world that is a little, little less righteous? And I don't think we understand our adversaries very well now. And I, don't, I think that we need to do more to create these channels, which Corey was saying are still there in, in important vestigial forms. And so my question is about red teaming. It's about how do we bring in some of the dissident voices that might make the discourse within your respective offices richer and potentially more fertile and able to find a way forward and create an old in the medium term, greater stability, despite the apparent disagreement. Uh, All of the discussions that we have, um, unlike the one we're having today, is supported by the intelligence community, the defense department, um, information that is available to our fingertips. I got to end it there. I just got to end it there. The the comment went on and on, but there, that was you, Greg, right? You were saying, is there a chance to have a little bit more realism, a little bit more rationality? And he immediately says, well, we've turned it over to the security, the investigator, the NSA, the Defense Department. And I'm going, for God's sake. I mean, it started under, I don't know when it started, but I certainly heard it under Obama. I remember calling back here to talk to my wife after a meeting in the Obama administration. The budget people were great. But over in the policy side, they couldn't hate Russia enough. Oh, my God, this, you know, this is going to go to a very dark place. This man I spoke to was almost a frothing at the mouth, and he had been fed this intel to uh, manipulate his consciousness about what was going on in Ukraine, uh, which is much more complicated than the simplistic picture that I got from him in the National Security Council. Well, I got one more clip of somebody who made sense and i hope we can hear it so listen close thank you i think we have time for one more question yes uh i met with uh christopher Gray, uh, i'm a grand-damn veteran but uh, my concern is you know over the last three days of this conference i've been amazed i don't have a the scientific uh level of uh, understanding, but just the incredible uh, advances that have been, have been made uh, with technology, both with weapons, weapon systems, etc., but also uh, surveillance, monitoring, uh, and I think the you know, military is, is doing the job they've been tasked with, and I, I give them credit for that. Uh, for me, those who are missing in action are the diplomats. Uh, and I say that because understanding that the, uh, when I think about what's an acceptable level of risk in strategic deterrence, 
if it's not zero, then it's not acceptable. Because we're talking about annihilation. Not just of our country, but worldwide. And uh, someone mentioned uh, eliminating risk earlier, and they corrected themselves and said reducing risk. <laughs> we can't eliminate risk. My concern is that you know, our successes in, in modernization and technology are, are laudable, but in the big picture, do they make us safer? Or do they increase our adversaries' sense of vulnerability and reduce uh, their time, especially with some of our technologies, reduce it, their decision time when there's a question about whether they're under attack with a nuclear weapon? Uh, so I think that's uh, a big concern of mine. Uh, I also wanted to mention uh, the uh, UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which entered into force in January of 2021. Uh, we are not a signatory of that. None of the nuclear states are at this point. But uh, we are a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and Article 6 of that treaty mandates the nuclear states to pursue, in good faith, negotiations with the other states uh, to reduce uh, uh, the nuclear uh, arsenals with a, with a view to disarmament and to pursue a treaty, a general treaty, uh, eliminating nuclear weapons globally. We have that treaty now with the UN treaty. So, I mean, I, know I wouldn't want anyone to be out of a job, but I think the, the world wants peace, the world wants security, and I don't think that's a zero-sum game. You know, We can't be secure if the rest of the world isn't secure. And for me, uh, relying on nuclear weapons is not gonna make us safe. I was uh, <clears throat> alarmed when I read a, a report of uh, uh, General Hayden, who had your job back in 2018, uh, speaking to the Arms Control Association. He was describing the global thunder, strategic deterrence, war games, and uh, he was pretty blunt with them. He said, I hate to tell you, but it ends the same way every time. It ends bad. And by that, I mean it ends in global nuclear war. This is Adam Stratcom saying that. Now, I don't know what his thoughts are now, but, you know, even if it isn't every time, if it's one in a million, that's too many. So those are just my thoughts. Thank you. So, Harvey, that was you. What was their answer? <laughs> well, that, that's what I was criticized for not posing a question, but I thought I was posing a question. I just didn't. What was their response? A long pause. Okay. And then a lady comes on and says, thanks for coming. Have a nice day. <laughs> um, I I wanted to say, uh, I uh, what a wonderful uh, comment that was, which was a question also. The fact that it went on so long and how patient the audience was, they knew that this is the kind of voice that was being excluded, and they felt guilty. And here was an articulate voice speaking rationally about the problem that they think about themselves, but can't or don't talk about. So... Uh, I felt that uh, Harvey was uh, channeling the unconscious of the many of the people there. Excellent. I hope you're right. <laughs> Greg, we've had a number of people come on the show over the last four, five, six months, which have talked about they don't know what it is, but something's coming. Right. So give us your perspective. Oh, boy. It, um, it's like that. Um, we have uh, this exponentially rising payments on the money that the federal government has borrowed. So you might argue, well, we could just borrow an indefinite amount and that doesn't matter. But the 
the interest payments have to be paid. So that is now as much as the defense budget. So, you know, it's almost $8,000 per household for defense. And then it's about that much again for interest. So we have $15,000, per household per year going down the drain. And that is to say, not in making goods and services or infrastructure that the country needs. And that's a huge drain. And it's increasing. Um, other mandatory spending is increasing. You can't raise taxes. Well, politically, I mean, it will throw the country into recession. No politician wants to do that. So we have that. We have uh, really a worsening climate crisis that um, the probability of a major, one or more major climate events, they're climbing. We're, we've loaded the dice. Uh, there could be a flood in California like there was in, what, 1862 in that time frame when a lake formed in the Central Valley that was 300 miles long. And um, cows and people washed out the gold, under the what is now the Golden Gate Bridge. We have someone who is president who really can't remember things or or be able to push back against these uh, deep state forces like the uh, nuclear industry, the military as a whole. Um, and he's supposedly running for president. We have another candidate who is mercurial, widely hated by some, uh, loved by others, but under siege and definitely not in the in a sort of political mainstream. You don't know what he's going to do uh, if he is elected, if he's able to run. We have all of these political things going on that are very volatile. Then we have our wars. Um, we are in a expanding war in the Middle East of our own choosing. We can't seem to rein in our genocidal ally, Israel, and the United States standing is falling uh, like a stone in the world for good reason. Um, people, a million, two, uh, two, one or two million people are starving if they're not, you know, buried under rubble. And in Ukraine, that project is collapsing. Um, any one of these places could be a flashpoint for further war, but clearly already, and then of course we've blown up the natural gas supply of our strongest ally in Europe. All of these things point to a kind of hinge in history, which we are at. And what happens now is not clear, but it's not going to be like it has been before. And so there's this everyone that we work with and the young people, they all have a sense of foreboding, like the future is no, not guaranteed, that there's a sense of volatility, a sense of loss. Uh, we never had, I never had growing up. Um, when people look in the future, they see a blank now. Good gracious. Is there any reason to hope? I think it's important to say that this industry is not monolithically strong that I think I just want to repeat that that they can be beaten if we actually participate in the political process um, by that I'm not sure exactly what I mean but uh, you guys are certainly doing it I hope we can be alert to strange bedfellows I read this morning that conservative senator Mike Lee from Utah spoke apparently for four hours against uh, more aid more support for the war in Ukraine. Well, good for him. Uh, when you got Ray McGovern and Mike Lee on the same side, you know, that's saying something. I guess I just wanted to encourage, and I feel encouraged by you guys. I think there's a lot of latent support and I think people are sick of violence. If we could prevent uh, another Cold War, that it would be worthwhile. Well, we've had successes, they don't have a pit factory uh, at this point to make new atomic bombs. The United States just can't do that. We hope to extend that period of time so that uh, that will provide some breaks. We we do 
have more ways to further that um, being here in the belly of the beast. I don't want people to be discouraged, but to fold in this need for cooperation uh, that was in the GIO question, that beautiful GIO question. I think there's a latent support for that. We need it for climate. We need it uh, in so many ways. We, our nuclear disarmament uh, has so many latent friends that if we open up those political relationships. So are you going back to the conference next year? You know, I'm not sure. This was rough for me, you know, getting just like sheep dipped in this propaganda uh, hour after hour and day after day uh, with not very many facts. They were very careful not to say things that that um, Harvey and Jim and I could use uh, in our work. And so there was just a very slight sprinkling of useful information that I can't say for sure right now. The whole, whole all of Washington is a little bit consumed with in a war fever. The changes that I mentioned they affect our pattern of work, the normal way that Congress works, the oversight process, such as it has been, is you know fallen to a very minimal level now. You have the advantage and also the burden of knowing a lot more than we do. <laughs> Just thanks so much for the opportunity to talk to you guys. Oh. And, uh, thank you for your work, um, which is very important and uh, really, really appreciate it. There was our interview with Greg Mello, Executive Director of the Los Alamos Study Group. And before that, Jim Carrier, independent journalist supplying material to any number of papers and periodicals. And of course, Harvey Bennett, all three of which attended the recent summit on nuclear deterrence in Washington, D.C. So, with that, and knowing that change has to come, we will finish up with Sam Cook. It's been a long, 
long time coming, but I know change gonna come. Oh. 